So Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The word of God says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Last weekend, I got to go on a trip with some of my friends up north, and um, one of my friends talked about how he just bought this new house. He moved from the city and out to the suburbs, and he has this beautiful home out there. Um, it's right by a lake. It's right by a beautiful golf course, and it's quite a bit more comfortable than the place he came from in a lot of ways. And he mentioned that he, he feels judged by some people for making this move, and um, he feels like he might have done something wrong. And to be honest, when I heard about it, I didn't know exactly how to feel about it myself. And this raises an important question that inevitably, when we live in a culture as affluent and as bountiful as ours, we need to ask the question, how does God feel about us having wealth and abundance? On one hand, is it something that God wants to give all of his children, if, and if we follow him, we'll get more of it? Or, on the other hand, is there something wrong with it? Like, did we do something we find ourselves really, really prosperous? Um, I've heard both of those opinions before, um, and I wonder if the answer is actually somewhere in the middle of those options, and if there's a few more details and nuances that we need to discuss. So if we take a look at Hosea, um, the book of Hosea, he's actually going to help us answer this question today. Um, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 mentions that he ministered during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And um, if we look back and study history, we learn that during the reign of King Jeroboam II, um, it was a time of peace and prosperity for the people of Israel. They had a lot of nice stuff. Hosea says that they had a lot of grain, a lot of priests, a lot of soldiers, a lot of places of sacrifice, and a lot of fortresses. And maybe that doesn't make you say, oh, wow. But back then, that's, that's really what it meant to be wealthy and successful. That'd be like today saying, I have a Mercedes and a cushy office job and stocks that are flying up in the stock market and Bitcoin and all this kind of things. And so, um, and so if you look back at this period, um, this is actually a period where Israel, God's people, had a lot of wealth and had a lot of abundance. Um, we can see this in verse 1 of chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And as, in country, as his country improved, he improved his pillars. From the get-go, I want to make something clear. Wealth and prosperity are not bad things in themselves. And by wealth, I don't mean just money. Wealth can be connections you have with other people, 
Wealth can be success in the workplace. Wealth can be emotionally supportive relationships with family and friends. Wealth can be just the sense that you can be optimistic about the future, that you don't feel trapped and stuck and fatalistic like you're never going to succeed and never get ahead. So wealth can be a whole number of different things. And in fact, when we have those things, the Bible actually regards them as good gifts from God. Wealth is a good thing that God gives to people. It's a good gift from him. We can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 7 says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. So what's true for God's people is true for every one of us here. Every bit of talent you have, every bit of wealth you have, your job, your friends, your spouse, the fact that you're breathing today and eating, these are all good things from God. And I just want to remind us because I so easily take them for granted. Like I should wake up and thank God. I think the psalmist says I thank God seven times a day and I don't do that. And I just want to remind us that these are good things that we ought to thank God for and that his word invites us to thank him for them. We're not supposed to feel guilty that we have these things. We're supposed to feel gratitude that we have these things. Going back to our text from Hosea, Hosea says that is like a vine that God planted, a luxuriant vine, and that's imagery. That's symbolism that's talking about this abundance that I'm talking about right now. So if you, if you read in the Bible, the story is God took his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt, and he brought them to the promised land, and he says that he planted them there, and he nourished them there, and he caused them to grow up there. And it's like, so he's like a master gardener taking care of his plant. His people are like this plant that he's taking care of. And so when we read in Hosea chapter 10 that Israel is like a vine, that's just a metaphor or an image that says that God took tender and good care of his people. We can see this uh, from Psalm chapter 80. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it, and you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its roots to the river. And what I want us to recognize is that the reason God gave these good gifts to his people and the reason God gives good gifts to us is because he wants a relationship with us. The reason why parents give birthday presents to their children is because they love their children and they want their children to return to them thanks and gratitude for that gift. And so if at any time we're receiving a good gift from God, we don't return with thanks and praise to him, if the relationship doesn't deepen, then we have actually missed the purpose for the reason he gave us that gift. So God gives us gifts so that 
we can thank him. And that's exactly what Deuteronomy 10, verse, verse 10 of chapter 8 says. He, God says he wants his people to bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And so I just want you to pause and think for a moment. What, what's something good that God has given you that you haven't thanked him for yet? What's something good that he has shared with you that you haven't yet thanked him for, that you could still thank him for? And um, a big part of me thinks it'd be great to end the sermon right here. Like, that's, this is a really good place to end the sermon. Like, God gives us good gifts, so we should be thankful for them. That's uh, a sermon I could really easily say amen to and just walk away. But um, our verses actually go further than that, and they have more to share with us. So let's um, move on to point two of the sermon. Point one is that God gives us good gifts, and we should thank him for those gifts. Point two is wealth can lead us into sin because our hearts are fallen. And this comes from the, the second half of our text. So we read already, Israel's a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit, fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So Israel's response was not to bless and thank God for the good things he had given them, was it? It's maddening and perplexing what happens here. Quite the opposite thing happens. Instead of the relationship deepening with God who had given them the good things, instead what they do is they go and build altars to another God and thank and praise him instead. There's the irony here. There's something unexpected. God gave his people the good things so that they would come to him. And as soon as they got the good things, they went to another place besides him. It's not what we would expect to happen. And it'd be really easy to say, huh, I wonder why Israel did that. That was really bad of them. But if you read the Bible, what you actually find out is that Israel is just representatives of us and that when they fail in some way, they're actually just showing us ways that we're prone to fail. And so we should read this narrative very carefully as if we were in it, as if we're the ones who are just as prone to turn away from God when we receive good things as they are. Now, we just read verses 7 through 10 from Deuteronomy. And they were very encouraging verses. You know, God, God's giving you all these nice rocks, and, and good rocks were, that was a good thing back then. Um, and, and things to drink and things to eat. Okay, what does he say in verse 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 8? This is where God shifts his message. He says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments, and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied so that all you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
So having wealth and possessions and success, instead of leading us to thank God, can lead us to forget God. It can have the opposite effect. Hosea knows this well. He actually even quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 in his own book. He says in chapter 13, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I want you to ask, why, why did Israel forget God when they became full? Why, why did they turn away from God? Why do we sometimes turn away from God when we get good things? Is the problem with the wealth? That'd be convenient, wouldn't it? We could just blame, like, that thing made me do it. That, it was that thing and not me. But I just read two verses that repeated the same line. It says, their heart was lifted up against me. The problem is with the heart. Their heart was lifted up against me. That's a horrible phrase. This, this forgetting that, that having things can lead us into isn't like, oops, I forgot to lock the door. This is a culpable forgetting. Like, I meant to forget God because it was more convenient for me to forget God because I didn't feel like I needed him anymore. This is not forgetting that's an accident. This is forgetting that's rebellion. Those are two different things. And Hosea makes the same point in our text today. He says their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So that word, their, their heart is false, that word false, that, that word literally means smooth, like the heart is smooth. And that's the word that other parts of the Bible use to refer to the speech of false prophets. They have smooth speech that's deceptive. So this isn't very flattering for us, but what Hosea is saying is that our, just like the speech of the prophets is deceptive and even treacherous, our own hearts are deceptive and treacherous, and we need to be on guard against them. Jesus talks about wealth again and again and connects it to the heart. This isn't something that just Hosea does or just Moses does. Jesus does this in Luke chapter 16. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So now I want you to think one more time. Why is it that specifically wealth and success are so dangerous for our hearts? Why is it that wealth and success can lead us away from God? What is it about them? I think it's because wealth and money and power give us a sense of self-sufficiency, like we don't need God. Here's my main burden today. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Our hearts gravitate away from God when we have an abundance and it makes us feel like we don't need God. I'm going to put that a little more simply. When we have wealth 
we feel like we don't need help from God. That's the effect. That's the result. And whenever we feel like we don't need God, whenever you get to that point where it's just, you don't feel like desperate for him, you don't feel like you need him, that's a sure proof that you've put your hope in something else besides him. And I did some thinking, and I'm right here myself. Like, I tend to put my trust in riches and treasure. What, what's one example? So I started saving for retirement this year. And I had this little website, and you put money in it, and it shows you how much money you put into it. And then it shows you how much money your money makes. So it's got two numbers. And I noticed that when those numbers went up, my heart would got excited, which isn't bad. But I noticed that my heart got a little more excited about that than it did about giving to the Lord and giving to other people. What is that saying? What I'm really hoping in. What's that saying about me? And maybe what I want you to see today is that what I'm talking about is very subtle. No one would have called that sin out in me. No one would have seen, oh, Ross is putting his hope in his retirement account. No, it's, it's subtle. It's secretive. We have to be paying careful attention if we're going to catch the ways our hearts are drifting away from God. And we have to recognize when that happens that we're building altars, <laughs> just like the ancient Israelites were to other gods. I've never gone out in my front yard and hammered together an altar, and I hope you haven't either. But, but when there's something that your heart is hoping in more than Jesus, you're building an altar to that just the same as the Israelites were. You're building an altar to that thing, and God's just as displeased with it. And I just want to remind us that we're fools to do that, because stock market's going to crash one day. Hopefully not for a while. Our bodies are going to wear out. And even if we make a ton of money and are super successful in this life, when we die, we can't take any of it with us. Not a cent. And you're going to face God, and the only thing that will matter is whether you knew him or not, not how much money you made. Um, I have an uncle who lived by the philosophy, whoever has the most toys when he dies wins. How tragic. He doesn't get to take one of those toys with him when he meets God. How tragic. One good test for you would be if you inherited a million dollars right now. If you inherited a million dollars right now, what would you be most excited about using money on? And I hope, I hope I can grow, I hope we can grow to say, I want to use that money to advance the kingdom of God. I don't want to use it on my retirement first. I don't want to use it on my new house first. I want to see Jesus look good by the way I spend this. I have a charge for us today from 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, and I'm going to explain this in a moment, but we're the rich. We're, we're the rich. Even if you don't feel rich in this room right now, this, this still applies to all of us, and there's times I don't feel rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves 
as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I want to talk about how we can guard against living with our trust in riches and wealth instead of living with our trust in God. And before I do that, I just want to explain why I think we all qualify as the rich in this room. Um, we hear a lot about the 1%. We're part of the 99%, and there's a 1%. But actually, if we look globally, if we look historically, we're all in the 1%. And I know some of you probably feel not like you're in the 1% right now. Maybe in debt. Maybe um, have no car. You may not be able to feel like you afford rent. But that doesn't mean that your heart isn't at risk right now for trusting in the abundance that you do have. I want to use me as an example. I don't have to worry about where I'm going to get my next meal. I don't have to worry about that. And that's actually a position of extreme privilege and riches compared to the rest of the world. Like, even if I was completely broke and ran out of money, tomorrow, I could go to the church right next door and get a bunch of free food. Like, and this, this, according to a lot of people, would mean that you are crazy rich. I, um, I have a car. I know a whole lot of you aren't super excited about my car. But I can go wherever I want when I want to. And, and this is something I think we take for granted, is that we don't have to live fearing that like another country is going to come and attack us and take away our stuff. Like that's a pretty normal experience for a lot of people when the Bible was written. That's a pretty normal experience for a lot of people today. And so this, this kind of rest we're able to experience in, in this country is good. I don't want anyone to feel guilty about it. It's good. But it's also dangerous when our hearts are so inclined to wander away from God. So what are we going to do about this problem we have? Where are we going to go? Like, how, how are we going to address this? And I love how Jesus himself, remember how in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, it says that Israel's a vine? Jesus actually uses that imagery in his ministry. He teaches about a vine. And if we look at John chapter 15, verse 4, we can see that. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless it ab you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. The first thing we have to do is we have to clarify what real riches, what real fruit, what real treasure is. And Jesus makes that clear. Being with God and being changed to be like God is the real treasure. We work so hard for our paychecks, and that's good, and it can feel so rewarding, but that's not the real treasure. We can save for vacations, and it can feel so good to go to Disney World or Hawaii, but that's not the real treasure. 
We save for retirement for so long, and we can look ahead to it. And I'm sure it's great, but it's not the real treasure. Until we see that being with Jesus and becoming like him is the real treasure, we're not going to be able to fight against our heart's desire to hope in other things besides him. We have to redefine what really means the most to us. Earthly wealth does not bring any access to God at all. Only knowing how much you need him brings access to God. And earthly wealth can hide that from you. That's the threat. So what does that mean for us? It means having a lot of wealth. It means that we have to remind ourselves and remind one another daily how deep our real need is for real treasure. We have to remind ourselves how deep our real need is for real treasure. And that real treasure is intimacy with our Savior. We have something better than the things that our checkbooks can buy us if we're going to have Jesus. And I'm not having to go all over the Bible to make this point. Hosea himself makes this point in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. So just 11 verses after our verse. He says, Sow for yourselves crops, soldiers, no, righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Friends, let us discern what real life and real treasure is, and recognize that if any of you here know Jesus Christ, you're richer than the richest CEOs, and you're richer than the richest oil barons, and you're richer than the richest athletes. Perhaps you're here today, and being with Jesus is not yet the most important thing to you. I just want to be honest with you that whatever you're hoping in is going to fail you. I know that's not a fun message to say, but it's, not, it's, it's going to fail you eventually. You can't take it with you when you die. And um, I know that it's hard, and... To, to know what to do at that, this point. And I would say, just trust and believe in Jesus. Just come to him. Don't feel guilty that you have a bunch of stuff. He doesn't want to take that from you. He wants to give you something you've never received yet, forgiveness of sins. You need to receive more from God than you've received so far. You haven't received enough yet from God. If you don't know God, you have not received the greatest gift he has in store for you. You received some of his gifts and you missed out on the biggest one. Don't miss out on it. Don't miss out on that treasure. Don't miss out on the treasure of having your sins forgiven. Don't do that. This judgment is coming. And the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to take that judgment. We can be forgiven. We can be reconciled with God right now. And we're having a baptism next week. And on that day, there's going to be some people here who are going to go under the water, and they're going to proclaim that Jesus Christ is their greatest treasure and they live for him. And we want you to do that too. You could do that too. You could join this family. You could join following Jesus. And for those of you who are already following Jesus, I want to encourage you to do a few things. Because you don't have to depend on your riches and your treasure to be your hope, you're now free to be generous. You're now free to live a generous lifestyle. If it's your hope, you have to hoard it. If it's not your hope, you can give it away. We have 
a, a general rule here, or not a rule, but an encouragement that you start by giving 8% of what you make to God and 2% to one another. And what I mean by one another is the other people who are in need. And I just really want to call us to recommit to that if we've fallen short. Because when you give, your heart's love for money and wealth is going to be set free. When you hoard it all, then your heart grows to love it more. But when you give it, your heart is set free from loving it. And I want to especially push us to try to give that 2% to someone you know in your life who, who, who needs generosity right now. I have to remind myself, and I forget to do that, but I've seen it be such a sweet blessing to people. Are, are, you, are you looking for people to be generous to? Are you looking to show people that your treasure isn't your paycheck? Please. There's, there's blessings in store for you. And you should probably uh, stop right there, right? That's just as far as God wants you to go. Like, he doesn't want you to be generous beyond your 8% and your 2%. No, he wants us to live full lives of generosity. Um, I wish I had more time to talk about that. It's going to have to be on the podcast. But I would love for us to live full lives of generosity, of sharing with other people of having a sense that our things are also for them, for others in our family and others we're sharing Jesus with. And, and the point is that whether you recognize it or not, you're, you are an altar to something. Your life is an altar to something. How you use your time, talent, and treasure is worshiping something. And so many of us around us, myself included, was one time an altar to materialism or to self, and the Israelites, they were altars to Baal. What does the Apostle Paul tell us? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be an altar that testifies to how amazing God is. You say to me, Ross, that's going to cost me. I'm going to have to sacrifice and it's going to hurt. Well, yeah, what do you think happens at an altar? It's a place of sacrifice. And the reason why it's good to sacrifice is because that in the Bible, when we see right sacrifice, that's where God shows up. If we want God to show up in our family, if we want God to show up in our lives, we have to live sacrificially. God doesn't show up when we live safely. God doesn't show up when we live self-absorbed lives. But he shows up when we live other absorbed lives and Jesus-absorbed lives. He shows up at the altars in the Old Testament. He shows up at the sacrifice of Jesus. He shows up throughout the Bible when his people are willing to sacrifice. A good example that I think I could point us to is how um, Mary and Benjamin Wilson show such sweet hospitality. I get, I get a sense when I'm there that everything is up for grabs. Well, maybe not that. I wish they get a sense that we're sharing everything. There's nothing, there's nothing that I'm like, oh, can I touch this? Or can I drink this? Or can I eat this? It's just like, yeah, of course. And um, that's totally not our culture. And I wonder if, our, if each of our households could grow to be more like that. That when people are in our homes, they're amazed at how well we share. When people are at our gatherings, they're amazed at how well we share. What, I, what I'm calling us to is difficult, 
and it's impossible apart from Christ to do this. Like, you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to live a self-sacrificial life and just go do it. No, we need, we need help to do it. And the best verse that shows us the pattern of how we should do this and the power to do this, um, shows, Jesus shows us how to do it and he empowers us to do it. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Every one of us, when we were dead in our sins, were poorer than the poorest pauper in the poorest country. We don't, we don't recognize that because we don't feel poor in so many ways. But apart from Christ, each we're poorest than the person we've ever met or seen in a picture. And when we believed in Jesus, we became richer than we could ever imagine. And we know that what God wants to do, what God does to us, he wants to do through us. So when you've been made spiritually rich, you can make others rich by serving them and pointing them to Jesus. That's the pattern of how this works. It takes the cross, it takes what Christ has done for us to be able to love other people. And I haven't shared this other part yet. Um, this is probably a whole other sermon, but I'm going to try to do it in two sentences. Um, which is that when Jesus comes back and he rules this world with his people, he's going to share everything with us. Like we will literally possess the whole world. We'll be richer than rich could ever imagine. And, and the best part is we won't be thinking about these things as better than Jesus because we'll always know that Jesus is better. We won't have to compete anymore. We'll just get to enjoy everything with him. And this battle will finally be over. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you gave up all the riches you had so that we could become rich. Lord, I'm sorry for the ways that I have not been utterly amazed that you have forgiven my sins. I pray that all of us would be refreshed and renewed in remembering that you have forgiven our sins. And you have given us a relationship with you. And that's better. It's better than anything we could ever earn. So help us to lay our careers. Help us to lay our homes. Help us to lay ourselves on the altar. So that other people can know Jesus through us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.